Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Woohoo! Woo! <laughs> we I are cold. <laughs> yes. Another early morning recording from the Cemetery yes. Row gals. Yes. I have had, okay, so I ran out of creamer and then I accidentally made my coffee really strong. <laughs> so, so you were, you're buzzing. Just go I grab not, some snow. Just go grab right? some snow. <laughs> I might not need my Vivance today. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're all really cold. It's uh, late January when we're recording this. We hope wherever you are, you are warm and toasty um, because we're not. <laughs> we're trying no, to be. we are not. I am wearing um, a beanie in my own house. I'm about <laughs> to put on my gloves. It is cold. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious yeah down here in the south we're like oh if it's below 70 we're freezing or at least i am <laughs> so you know it's, it's like much below 70 single di- i was like super excited on thursday when it was like a balmy 26 i'm like shit i could go run errands <laughs> no. i got things to do no i cannot function in that kind of weather no yeah no i'm back recording upstairs um and we save money by not running heat or air up here so in the summer it gets really hot and then in the winter it gets really cold no one's been up here since adam used it as his covid ward uh, <laughs> so it's well, really was, when i was a kid and we had the 100 year old farmhouse that i grew up in we mm. would put a blanket over the kitchen door and then none yep. of us slept in our rooms we closed off our rooms and we all slept in the living room yep. to preserve heat yeah because it was so cold and our little propane heater just could only do so mm-hmm. much yep yeah so so yeah we're a little chilly um so I'm and, huddled and Adam's... by the radiator hoping for <laughs> Yes. Wanting the cats to come snuggle with me, but they would rather fight instead. So yeah, of course they would. That's, that's a cat for you. And Adam's doing better, right? Yes. All the popes are on the mend. Yay. <laughs> Good. Um. So yeah. So before we get started this week, I don't know if we have any other news, but I for sure wanted to pimp out my upcoming true time true crime tours at elmwood cemetery in memphis um i'll be giving two walking tours and then an indoor tour seated um so it's not really a tour it's just a presentation um uh at the end of march uh tickets are on sale now and you can find those on eventbrite or if you go to elmwoodcemetery.org i would love to have you with me if you are in the memphis area um it is um, not to um, toot my own horn or um, ruffle my own peacock feathers or whatever, but everyone who's been has always given me lots of compliments and, and said they had a great time. So it would mean the world to me if I had some Cemetery Road people there to yes. celebrate with Yes, me, so. absolutely. Do yes. we want to mention our new friends in New York that we're going to be doing some fun Ooh. stuff with? We've been, let's, let's just tease that. We yes. have communication with a really wonderful cemetery in New York and Brooklyn. And we have some um, collaborations coming. 
We're planning. So, yes, yes, we're planning. We're very excited. We had a great meeting with them uh, yesterday. So shout out to them. They know who they are. They're listening. Um, <laughs> and, and we're really excited about what's to come. It's going to, you know, you'll, if you are, if you follow that cemetery, you'll get some content. If you follow us, you'll get some content and it's going to be awesome. Yes, indeed. So if um, you have a cemetery and you want to work with us, call us. Yeah. We hey, love it. If yes. you are a cemetery and want to hire me. <laughs> yes. I shouldn't say that because I know I have coworkers who listen to this, but <laughs> it's true. They you know, know they know you fair would... and love and war. Okay. <laughs> especially when it comes to Sheena's love of cemeteries. Yes. You know, you can uh, reach us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can send us an email, cemeteryroadpod at gmail.com. Um, and we would love to connect with you. Absolutely. Even if you just have a really cool story. Yeah. We, email we us. It. We want the yeah. stories. We do. That's, I mean, that's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. So, Unless we have any other news, and I don't believe we do. Nobody's died recently, I don't think. We have we? No. No. No, not since last episode. Yeah. True. Uh, those come in threes. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so this week um, we are discussing Black Excellence as we go into February and um, Black History uh, Month. Black History Month. Yeah, thank you. My Diet Coke has not set in yet. Come on, <laughs> Diet Coke. Um, so we are talking about uh, Black folks who made a difference in this country and in their respective. Um, what, what's my word there, y'all? Come on. This Diet Coke ain't working. In their respective, uh, you know. Fields and fields. They, just, <laughs> they just made a big impact on history and their stories deserve to be shared. And not just for, you know, their communities, for the world at large, too, which, of course, being, you know, moving forward in the Black community is obviously extremely important. And that's what this month is about. But without these people, you know, change just would not have happened. Yep. So I'm going to kick it off today. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, the South's first Black millionaire and who literally helped Memphis rise from the ashes. Um, I'm going to do a good bit of scene setting. So you sort of understand this person's importance. So just hang in there with me. (laughs) So picture it, Memphis. We're going to be in Memphis a lot in this episode, y'all. Yeah. And we didn't plan it. No, we didn't. Uh, so yeah, Memphis, the latter half of the 19th century. Um, this was a really busy and, um, difficult, incredibly difficult time for the city of Memphis. So first of all, of course, you have the Civil War, which w- made a huge impact. Um, when the Union Army occupied Memphis, many enslaved men from the surrounding areas left their plantations to join the Union troops. And the Black population in Memphis before the war was about 3,000. But by 1865, the Black population swelled to over 20,000. So that obviously made a big difference. And then after the war, racial tension in the city was very high. And in May 1866, and this is a story we need to delve into much deeper at some other point, 
But there was an altercation between African-American former Union soldiers and white Memphis police officers. And this led to three days of just absolute horror and terror. Um, It's known as the Memphis riots of 1866. White citizens killed and assaulted black Memphians with 42 black people killed and another 175 injured or robbed. That's not even counting sexual assaults and other horrible, horrible things. Oh my God. And that's Um, just the ones we know about. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And more than a hundred black homes, churches, and schools were destroyed. And then not long after that, like I said, the late 1800s was difficult for, for Memphis. Then you have two yellow fever epidemics, one in 1873 and another in 1878. And a lot of the uh, white wealthy citizens or, you know, moderately wealthy could leave the city and they did um memphis lost about 75 percent of its population um and this left poor white people and then black citizens to rebuild the city and the thing is that because memphis lost such a huge chunk of its population tennessee pulled the city's charter so it wasn't a city it was just a taxing district and in 1885 or I saw a couple of different dates, the 1885s, and then I saw 1893. Either way, the city began selling municipal bonds to pay back its debts. And a man by the name of Robert Church, the South's first black millionaire, bought that first $1,000 bond, which helped rebuild the city of Memphis after all of this devastation. So who is Robert Church? Yes, get into it. (laughs) yeah that was a lot of scene building yeah so you kind of understand where he is coming from and how he came to do all of this because i just think it's so cool that literally the the history of memphis as we know and love it today is because of this one black man i just think that's very awesome yeah very cool so robert reed church was born into slavery in 1839 in holly springs mississippi that's about um I don't know if it's even an hour southeast. Of oh, Memphis. no, it's like it's, it's not like 45, 45 yeah, minutes. It's yeah, super close. Yeah. Straight shot yeah. down the highway. Yep, it is. His mother, Emmeline, was an enslaved woman. Um, and his father was Emmeline's owner. Of which, course. Of course. Um, Captain Charles B. Church. Um, so, you know, I, in my opinion, that's not exactly a relationship. No. Nope. Whatever. Anyway. That's a rape. Yes, it is. Uh, Charles Church was a steamship owner, and he operated um, up and down the Mississippi River. And from what I heard, that he didn't really necessarily treat Robert and Emmeline just as regular enslaved people, but he also didn't really do much for them either. And he didn't, he never formally claimed Robert as his son. He didn't try to get him an education. So, real piece of work (laughs) yeah one of those kind of a dick you're you're well you didn't i guess torture them but you didn't do much else human either so the bar is on the floor literally (laughs) so emmeline died in 1851 when robert was 12 i don't know what she died from i'm not sure where she's buried unfortunately Charles um, then began taking Robert with him on his steamship, and they traveled up and down the river. So Robert learned how to work the ship and how to do all these different jobs on the ship. Um, I think I read somewhere that there was um, one of their ships caught on fire, and like he and his father like barely escaped, which is kind of wild. But either way, 
Uh, fast forward to the Civil War in Memphis. Well, in America, but specifically in Memphis. <laughs> specifically in Memphis. <laughs> uh, Union troops took over Memphis in 1862, and the church steamship was seized, and Robert escaped. Um, he was technically still enslaved by this point, and um, but he still he managed to basically go into the city of Memphis and find work. And he worked as everything from a salesman's assistant to a stable boy to a shoe shiner. And all the while he saved up his money to open up a saloon on Bill Street. And you know, I mentioned earlier that all of those enslaved men had left their plantations to join the army in Memphis. So you have this huge um just influx of of black folks coming into the city of Memphis. And this is basically what fed his saloon business. He was able um, to basically have a very successful saloon on Bill Street because all these enslaved people were now in Memphis. Um, And he was doing really well, doing really great. Civil War ends. He's got this great saloon. Everything's going lovely. But then the Memphis riots of 1866 happen. And a lot of the uh violence was centered on south main in memphis and on bill street that sort of area mm-hmm. of downtown memphis of course and um he was singled out someone came into his saloon and shot him and left him for dead but he survived so damn that's great yeah yeah good um so then you have the yellow fever epidemics <laughs> um and um by the time you get to the the yellow fever epidemics of the 1870s robert was by this point officially wealthy he not only had his saloon but he had hotels and some other properties in town so he really had had started to create some wealth for himself and he was able to do what a lot or most or basically any black person in memphis could do he moved his family outside of the city so they would not be affected as badly by the eight by the 1878 yellow fever epidemic which was as we know caused by mosquitoes and um downtown memphis was so swampy and gross and stinky and watery and damp so that's why you get so much of the Mm -hmm. yellow fever epidemic centered right there in downtown memphis um but yeah he was able to save his family and move them out which as i said white people did that all the time black people did not so that was very different um but yeah he owned a lot of businesses um but he also made a lot of his wealth in real estate so when memphis lost such a huge part of its population in 1878 due to either everyone dying from yellow fever or moving away of course that means your property values drop so he bought up a lot of properties all over the city everything from bars in red light districts to housing to commercial buildings and um so this meant he owned a good chunk of the city and as i mentioned earlier when they put those bonds on sale he bought the first bond to help rebuild the city of memphis and then a lot of other people followed suit and that's what helped memphis build back after that which if i'm not mistaken i think memphis was able to reestablish its city charter in the 1890s So when he bought all this property, he decided to use it for good for the Black folks of Memphis. Um, He developed parks, auditoriums, concert halls, and playgrounds 
um, specifically for black people in Memphis to have and to use, because of course, segregation was still going strong, right? So they got to have somewhere they can gather. And he used these facilities for political rallies and graduations and entertainment, basically all kinds of good stuff. Um, His auditorium held about 2000 people and he hosted Theodore Roosevelt, who spoke at the auditorium in 1902. Um, As I said, the auditorium held 2,000, but more than 10,000 showed up to hear him speak. Oh, wow. (laughs) So that was kind of, uh, you know, bonkers. Um, Educator and author Booker T. Washington spoke there and writer James Weldon Johnson, who wrote the African-American National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. uh, He spoke there, too, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then the Memphis music great W.C. Handy served as orchestra leader for the auditorium and for the Robert Church Park. Um, I don't believe any of these places exist anymore in the city of Memphis, which ticks me off. But well, yeah, I haven't heard of any of them. Yeah, I know. I like, oh, thanks, Memphis. Anyway, <laughs> he also uh, became a prominent philanthropist in the city. He gave to the Black schools and charities and churches. He also paid off the creditors of the Beale Street Baptist Church, which originally housed the newspaper office of someone named, gosh, I don't know, Ida B. Wells. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so basically, so the, the church wouldn't get destroyed foreclosed on and destroyed and it's still there you can still go visit the church which is so cool it's so pretty i love that church um so literally you, you have robert church to thank for that church <laughs> mm-hmm. um and he hosted and funded an annual thanksgiving meal for the black poor in town which i'm sure was very appreciated um in 1906, Robert Josiah T. Settle, M.L. Clay, and T.H. Hayes established the Solvent Savings Bank, Memphis's first Black-owned bank. He served as its founding president, and he ensured the African-American community that they would be able to get loans to build homes and businesses and all that good stuff. Um, I mean, I'm sure this man probably had some faults somewhere, but... Really, everything I read was he gave and he built and he did and he really was trying to build up. Well, and black people in banking is still an issue. Yeah, big today time. of big like time. yes, you know they get different home loans. Mm-hmm. Your house gets appraised differently based yes, on their family pictures of black people versus white people. Yep. So good for him. Yeah. Good for him. I, I I know, and I have not finished reading this book. There's a book called Bill street dynasty that I think talks a lot about him and how Memphis built back on vice because vice is a really, I don't touch on this at all in here, but it's a big industry. It's a huge industry. And it was really big in Memphis. And that's really kind of what helped Memphis build back after yellow fever. Um, I mean, I think he owned a little bit of everything, including brothels and including, you know, gambling halls and all that. But, um, you know, hey, it got us to where we are today. Which They don't call it the world's oldest profession for nothing. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I, I think he, he owned a little bit of everything, but I think he was a smart businessman who knew what he was doing and he knew what the people wanted. So either way, we've talked all about his um basically business we have not talked about his personal life and there's not a lot of information about his personal life in terms of like 
like he didn't write a lot of personal letters. So there's not a lot of information say on like his personality, but he did get married several times and he did have several children. And a lot of those children were extremely successful as well. Um, he first married a woman in 1857, but because they were both enslaved at that point, um, they don't consider that marriage legal. I, I would, but whatever. <sighs> anyway, uh, his second wife, Louisa, was a mixed race woman born into slavery, just like him. Uh, they had two children, Mary Eliza Church and Thomas Ayers Church. And Mary is like, I mean, we could do an entire episode on her. She was the first black woman to earn one of the first black women to earn a college degree. And she went on to become a principal or I mean, a teacher and then a principal and then a civil rights activist. She was a founder, founding member of the NAACP and the first black woman appointed to the school board of a major city. And that city was Washington, D.C. So very cool for her. And when I looked her up, man, that woman is beautiful. Oh, wow. Just a just a fun fact. I was just like, wow, she's pretty. Um, Louisa and Robert eventually divorced, um, and then he married Anna Susan Wright. They had one son, Robert Reed Church Jr., and a daughter, Annette Elaine Church. And Robert took over a lot of his father's businesses, and he also became involved in politics. He established the Lincoln League in 1916 to register Black voters, fundraise to pay for poll taxes, and to advocate for the interests of African Americans. Uh, he registered 10,000 black Memphians to vote. Hell yeah. And he also worked, and this is a little, uh, this, this worries me a bit. He also worked with E.H. Um, e. Crump, who was Memphis mayor, <laughs> known as Boss Crump. He um, was mayor for a little while in the 19 teens. And then basically he ran the city of Memphis for the first half of the 20th century. He was um, super, super crooked and, uh, not always a nice guy, but you know, sometimes you got to work with people. Memphis like that, politician. Yeah. Corrupt. <laughs> what? Really? Who's heard of that? Gosh. Oh, that's always my favorite story is when some council person's done something wonky. You're like, oh, Memphis. Shocked. <laughs> um robert reed church jr also served as an advisor to several republican presidents in the 20s um because they were republicans of course that meant something a little different by them the switcheroo happened yeah um and robert himself never really got super involved with politics but he was chosen as a delegate for william mckinley in the 1900 uh, republican convention so he did some stuff but not a whole lot in terms of politics um, I think I read that he ran for office once, but I don't even know what it was. And it, it wasn't successful. So it's like, nah, never mind. Anyway, Robert Church died at the age of 73 in 1912 after a brief illness. Um, he is buried in a beautiful mausoleum at Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. Um, it is in sort of the more traditional black section of the cemetery. And it's a very big, very nice monument. Absolutely lovely. Um, also buried in that mausoleum are members of his family, his wife, Anna, who died in 1929, Robert Church Jr., his son, who died in 1952, his daughter, Annette, who died in 1975, his daughter-in-law, Sarah Church, that's Robert's wife, who died in 1960, and his granddaughter, Sarah Roberta Church, the last family member to be buried in there um, in 1995. And his mausoleum reads, pioneer businessman, 
first citizen to buy bond to restore city charter after yellow fever epidemics, 1878-1879, bought bond number one for $1,000. His life is woven into the history of Memphis. And that is Robert Church, the South's first black millionaire who also saved the city of Memphis. I love it. And, you know, I have never heard of this man. I know. Isn't that crazy? I've lived in this area since I was six years old and I've never heard of him in any of my history classes. It's It's like we're all from the area and it's like, wait. When were y'all going to mention this? Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I really love. And, and when we, when Elmwood had its soul of the city event this past fall, we focused on the 1878 yellow fever epidemic. And um, that was one that we had someone as, I think as a net church. And she talked about her father and um, I mean, you know, as an actor you know what I mean (laughs) and uh that's what she was saying was you know basically this city is here because of a black man and and I just I love that I think that's awesome that's why this city's still there (laughs) yeah it's still here because this one man was like I'm investing in this city I believe in it and we're going to build back and build better and he did everything he could for for the black population here which is so important so well and when you go to memphis you're experiencing black culture i mean memphis is black culture from the food and the music yes it's black culture it's once better than nashville i said it i said come at me i have nashville is for rich white folks it is 100 100 bachelorette parties and rich white people Right. I mean, when we went to go see, which is like the anniversary of us going to see my favorite murder in yeah. Nashville, I was like, where? I'm not used. You literally asked that. I was like, where are the black people? You did. Because <laughs> and I'm I was not like, you to southern cities without black people. Exactly. It and you have to either, mind. you have to either go to the sub, not suburbs really, but sort of like the, I mean, um, we did find the neighborhood when we found that creepy occult shop, but I was like, oh, <laughs> this is where you keep them. Yes. Like, basically. What is happening here? But like, or I hate to say it, or they're homeless. You'll see them. Right. Walking, so you'll see black people walking downtown because they're homeless. And it's like, right. this is ridiculous, Nashville. Like y'all need some serious, like it, it, it bothers me how segregated it feels. It is. Whereas Memphis does not feel segregated to me. No. I, mean, I know it is. I know. Yeah. Trust me. I, I see uh, yeah. it because Germantown and Cordova are white as lilies, whereas you have Orange Mound and other historically black um, neighborhoods. Yeah, I I see it, but it does not feel as bad. So, right. I mean, that's like when Justin Timberlake tries to claim Memphis. I'm like, bitch, you're from Germantown. He's from Millington. Is he from Millington? He's from Millington. Yeah. Like, bitch. No. (laughs) No. Uh uh. Not one of us. No. Back Step back, honey. Step back. So yeah, so um, if you are at Elmwood, please go visit uh, the Robert Church Mausoleum. It is very lovely. It's one of the, um, I want to say eight mausoleums they have at Elmwood. It's it's definitely, I think, one of the nicest, of course, because he was a millionaire. <laughs> Absolutely. He better and have he a does nice have, one. He does have a lot of, um, there are a lot of um, amazing Black folks from Memphis who are buried near him, like Josiah T. Settle, one of the um law black lawyers in memphis is like right behind the mausoleum and uh you have a couple of tuskegee airmen down there and things like that so anyway that's my story Luhu, hey. your turn well i'm gonna start off by apologizing i am 
off of caffeine and have been <laughs> for about this is day uh five now and I'm Ugh. struggling I'm on the struggle bus so bear with me <laughs> uh if I make any mistakes you know we got you boo pray for you girl because this has not been easy (laughs) we got you so my story today is not only connected to the one hannah will be sharing momentarily but also one of my favorite stories that sheena has covered but i'm gonna leave it a surprise (laughs) today we are gonna learn a little bit about a total badass miss bessie coleman the first woman of african-american descent to become a licensed pilot While her life was short, the impact of the woman who had become known as Queen Bess in the civil rights movement is undeniable. Heck yeah. I love this lady. She is a queen. Yes, she is. Bessie Coleman was born on January 26th, 1892 in Atlanta, Texas. She was the daughter of George and Susan Coleman, who worked as day laborers, farmers, and cotton pickers. In 1894, the family moved into a shotgun house in Waxahachie, Texas. Where, <laughs> I love saying that. Yeah. Where Bess- they lived with Bessie and her 13 siblings. Um, only eight survived childhood, um, which is normal for that time period. Um, George Coleman was part Native American, and his life in Texas was at risk every day because of this. So in 1901, he left the family to move to Oklahoma's Indian Territory, where he felt he would be safer from the racial issues he faced in Texas. Susan and the kids remain in Waxahachie, and that is all I could find mention of her dad. He just abandoned the family in 1901 and left Susan and the kids in Texas. Why you would move to Texas knowing that you were Native American when there were issues just okay whatever so Bessie would attend school until cotton season when she and her siblings would be forced to work the fields which she hated however she still managed to finish high school and in 1910 she saved up enough money to leave Texas for Oklahoma to attend the colored agricultural and normal university which is now known as Langston University, and it's in Langston, Oklahoma. She ran out of money after one semester, and so she had to leave. She was undeterred by this, so in 1915, she moved to Chicago to live with her brother, John, and while she was there, she attended the Burnham School of Beauty Culture and became known as the best and fastest manicurist in Black Chicago. Ooh. Oh, it, she did marry in uh, 1917. She married a man named Claude Glenn, who was 14 years her senior, but she never publicly announced the marriage or recognized it, and they separated within weeks. So don't really know what happened there, but she did marry briefly. Um It was while working as a manicurist at the White Sox barbershop that Bessie would be pushed to pursue what would become her dream of being a pilot after frequent teasing from her brother and the ah. story yeah brothers sibling rivalry can yes. accomplish oh, yeah. things sometimes yes the story goes that john would often tease bessie about the lack of opportunities for women in the united states 
He had served in France during World War One and had seen how liberated the women were and joked that they could even fly planes. He said that a black woman, or rather he said a very inappropriate word to describe someone of African-American descent, would never be able to fly a plane, especially like the women in France. And that settled it. Bessie Bruh, was that was rude. Her pilot's license. <laughs> Brothers, yes. man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I would have told him to eat a dick, but <laughs> it was a different time. Bessie had class, okay? Yes. <laughs> so she applied to every flight school in the United States, but, but was rejected from all of them. She expressed her desire to fly to Robert S. Abbott, who is the editor and publisher of the Chicago Weekly Defender, the city's top African-American newspaper. And so he helped her research flight schools in France, and she prepared by learning French at, lo- at a local school and taking a second job to save money as she began applying to those French flight schools. Her persistence paid off, and she was accepted into a very prestigious French flight school that I cannot pronounce. <laughs> Google it if you really want to know. We don't speak French on this podcast. Again, I barely speak English. So (laughs) she spent 10 months in training, mastered all kinds of aerial tricks, tail spins, looping the loop. Uh, Because there was such a high risk of death, she had to sign a waiver before she was able to fly. She did. Uh, She managed to survive her training, and on June 15th, 1921, she received her international pilot's license and became the first American of any race or gender to receive a license from the International Aeronautic Federation in France. In order to receive this, she had to demonstrate a high set of skills that included turning the engine off before touching down, and I'm sorry, a box just fell off my desk, so... (laughs) It was the box was just so impressed by this. So. Yeah, you have a ghost. <laughs> Me too. In that I know. <laughs> she returned to the United States uh, in September 1921, and her return was covered by many national African American papers, but of course, no mainstream media attended. <laughs> Additionally, the cast of Shuffle Along, an African American Broadway musical review, presented her with a silver cup to commemorate her achievement. Oh. Bessie was clear in her her intention. She planned to perform flying shows to inspire other African-Americans to become pilots. And with the money she received from those shows, she would open her own flight school. Cool. That throughout all of this, that always remained her goal. She searched for a plane and a job for almost a year and finally gave up and went back to Europe in May of 1922, where she worked with a German pilot named Alfred Keller, and they test piloted airplanes. While she was working with him, she finessed her acrobatic skills and became an expert in figure eights, loop-the-loops, trick climbs, and more. She received credentials from the Aero Club of France and returned to the U.S. on August 14th of 1922. This time, her return was covered by multiple media outlets, including the New York Times and Chicago Tribune. So, as she has said all along, she wants to open a flight school for African-Americans, and she knew the only way she was going to be able to do it was by, you know, putting on these paid shows. She performed her first on Labor Day in 1922 to a record 
integrated crowd. She performed several acrobatic stunts with her plane and even had a man parachute off of one of the wings. Oh, and following. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Following the show, and I'm gonna pause right because there's um, and I want to cover her at, at some point, but there there's another female pilot from around this time. Her name was Phoebe Fairgrave Amelie. Uh, she would dance the Charleston on her wings. Okay, her, I think her balls yeah. of steel. I know these women were just anyway. So following that show, she would take individual passengers up for five dollars a piece. So again, another way for her to to make money. So not long after that first show, it was announced that she would star in her first film called Shadow and Sunshine. However, she read the script and refused to set foot on set because the first scene had her character wearing ragged clothes, carrying a walking stick and a tattered backpack. She was not about to give any credence to the white American's image of a black person. Good for her. Yes, absolutely. Her second performance was held during the Tri-State Fair in Memphis, Tennessee in October, on October 12th. And after a successful show, the Chicago Defender billed her as, quote, the only race aviatrix in the world. (laughs) She performed shows in Chicago, Gary, Aviatrix. I love that. Yeah, I do too. And Boston. Um, in late February 1923, she saved enough money to purchase her own plane, a Curtis JN surplus military biplane that is commonly known as a Jenny. However, in her very first show and before a crowd of 10,000, the engine on the plane stalled at 300 feet and fell oh. to the ground in a nosedive. Oh, shit. She survived the crash with a broken leg lacerations oh several broken ribs and was in the hospital for three months god Ugh. damn she That's was released and stayed with a local family in los angeles uh she would hold nightly lectures uh at the ymca showing videos of her flying and again this was all a way for her to hit reach that goal i need enough money to buy another plane and yeah. open up a flight school for black folks awesome after she recovered, she returned to Chicago in June. She had very little money, no real job prospects, but she made the most of it. She just kind of was wilding. She partied with a number of celebrities of the day and became Hell yeah. close friends with William Bojangles Robinson and, drumroll please, Josephine Baker. Oh, Ooh. cool. Oh, that's I, fancy. It's yes. a thing. Like, pilots are just mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) All of them. In fact, Bessie's passion for flying may have led Baker to receive her own French pilot's license later that same year. Fancy. Yes. So there's our connection. In September of 1933, she returned to performing aerial shows around the Midwest, but her ultimate goal was to go south. Um, her manager did not approve of that. He's like, let's stay where we're successful. And she's like, no, dude, you're fired. So in May of 1925, she moved her base of operations to Houston, Texas. She performed her first Southern show on June 19th and would continue to give lecture lectures and share footage of her past flights to various audiences. Again, she accepted whatever she could. If you were paying her, she was going to do it because she was saving her money. Yeah, she had her eye on the prize. Yep. 
1926, she accepted the invitation of Reverend Hezekiah Keith Hill and his wife Viola to stay in their home in Orlando, Florida. And it was while living with them that she became a born-again Christian. Viola was not a fan of Bessie using her performances as a fundraising tool. So she had her give more and more lectures and they even, the the two of them opened a beauty shop to help generate revenue to fund her flight school. Uh, In the spring of that year, so 1926, a rich white benefactor who had become enamored of Bessie gave her the last bit of money she needed to purchase a new plane, another Jenny. Awesome. While Bessie was booking speaking engagements, a young pilot and mechanic named William Wills, yeah, Will Wills, was preparing (laughs) to fly her new plane from Dallas, Texas to Orlando. The flight took him 21 hours and he had to stop two additional times. So he had scheduled to stop three times, but he had to stop an additional two times because the plane was in such poor shape. Mm. That should have been a warning sign that the plane was not safe. But William managed to make it there, landed and went on. He was her mechanic and publicity manager. And their first show that they would be performing together was to take place on May 1st, 1926, but that would not come to pass. So we'll start with April 29th. Bessie ran into her old friend and the newspaper publisher, Robert S. Abbott, at a restaurant in Orlando, or actually it was in Jacksonville, excuse me. He reported that he had had an uneasy feeling about her new plane and said, you know, why don't you just cancel your test flights? Don't perform, don't do it. Um, but she was like, no, I promised uh, this man named John Betched, who was a s- graduate student at Howard University, that she would give him a ride in the plane once they finished up with the test flight. So she wasn't going to go back on her word. Yeah. The next day, April 30th, Betch, or John picked up Bessie and they met William at Paxson Airfield. Bessie and William went up and that's when disaster struck. Uh, Bessie had Will, so they went up because she her plan for the show was that she was going to give William control of the plane and she would parachute out of the plane but she needed to find a good place to land so she you know normally was a very big proponent of safety uh so it's believed that she unbuckled herself to look over the side of the plane to try to find a good spot for her to land however the plane went into a nosedive at 3000 feet and at some point flipped over upside down gosh because bessie was not strapped in she fell from the plane Mm. um i've seen it i saw it different different sources said different heights um 2000 feet to 500 feet either way she was killed on impact gosh William was killed when the plane hit the ground. John Betched had witnessed the entire incident. And while he was in shock, he lit a cigarette and threw the match to the ground, which ignited the plane's spilled gasoline. Oh, and sent honey. the plane and William Wills' body up in flames while the police and first responders were trying to pull him from the oh, wreckage. He was cow. already dead. They were just trying to get his body. Oh, 
That's no throwing matches by active he was, vehicle yeah, scenes. Exactly. He he was just obviously in shock. I mean, yeah. I yeah, cannot yeah, yeah. imagine how fucked up your mind would be after witnessing that. Right? Yeah. Um, and to die the way Bessie died. I mean, to fall from a plane and know, well, shit. Yeah. This is it. This yeah. is it. You know. Mm get right with your god which she, you got she had she had 30 seconds yeah yeah Jeez. so following the crash it was discovered that a loose wrench had become jammed in the plane's control gears which is what caused william to lose control of the plane Jeez. plane bessie's death was covered exclusively by the black newspapers of the time but of course she was barely mentioned in mainstream publications. Mm. Uh, they chose to focus on the death of William, which, yeah, you know, of course. He, d- he deserved focus right. too, but he was white. So right. that is why they right. focused on him. More than 5,000 people attended two memorial services held for Bessie in Jacksonville before her wow. casket was sent to Chicago for final service and burial. Her casket was draped with a U.S. flag, and she was given a military escort by six pallbearers in uniform. Hmm. Ida B. Wells Barnett, who we will learn more about in a moment, served as a mistress of ceremonies of sorts over the service, which was attended by more than 5,000 Chicago residents. Bessie Coleman was laid to rest in lot 580, section 9 of Lincoln Cemetery. She does have very nice headstone. It doesn't have any it's not fancy it's got a nice picture of her dressed up in her full regalia there is another uh stone that's like in flux with the ground but it i i could tell that it was donated by somebody mm-hmm. but i couldn't read it it needs to be cleaned the granite yeah you, you couldn't understand the text i'll be right um, there by the end of the 1920s bessie's dream of a flying school for african americans would be realized when lieutenant william j powell established the bessie coleman arrow club in los angeles in 1934 he wrote because of bessie coleman we have overcome that which was worse than racial barriers we have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream oh how old was Bessie when she she, she was 36 or 34 <sighs> 34 oh that's young younger than she, us I yeah. know that's that's yeah uh so there are multiple memorials to Bessie across North America uh she was commemorated with a stamp from the National Postal Service in 1995 so was Ida yes <laughs> there are a number of roads and schools across the country named after her and her story was even fe- featured on an episode of Drunk History Oh, when astronaut Mae Jemison became the first African-American woman to go into space in 1992, she carried a picture of Bessie with her. Oh, in 2020 or in 2021, the International Astronomical Union even named a mountain on Pluto after her. Good for (laughs) her. She has been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, the National Aviation Hall of Fame, and the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. Additionally, for 40 years, the Chicago chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen flew over her grave on the anniversary of her death and dropped flowers. Um, However, uh, the event was canceled in 2020. Thank you, COVID. And there hasn't been any updates, so it has not taken place since COVID. Yeah. Bessie's death and legacy 
was, were finally recognized by that chieftain of mainstream media, the New York Times, in 2019 with an obituary published as a part of the newspaper's Overlooked series, which was a series of obituaries about remarkable people whose deaths went unreported by the Times. Yeah, I've got that too. Yeah, and that is the brief story of Bessie Coleman. Uh, there was a lot more to it. Um, there is a website that I uh, will link in the show notes, BessieColeman.org, that has a really in-depth bio where I got a lot of my information. And it talks a lot about the Tulsa race riots uh, because those occurred like two weeks before she came back from um, from France with her license and there were some reports of planes bombing the uh the Mm -hmm. african-american community there so it was it was a very big deal for a black lady to have a pilot's license right after that huge event took place um yeah i believe it was what 1920 i think it was like that it was 1919 or 20 something like that or i thought it was 22 yeah it may be 22 i or no it may be 20 i it, it, it's side story that we don't know this hang right. on we're well, side there, was, we're there side were googling. so many uh dates that i knew i should have put that in there but it was there was 1921 1921 see okay. i knew it was recent because i knew people had talked about it being like a hundred year thing yeah and i couldn't remember if it was yeah. uh, for some reason i thought it was this year but yeah it it, it was 21 yep yeah, yeah. Okay. i ought to know that I should know that because she commit that to memory. Yes, now we will. Yes. All right. All right. Speaking All right. of Ida B. Wells. Yes. A wonderful, wonderful woman. I'm so yes. excited for you to we tell story. Yes, we love Ida. We love Ida. As, as, as journalism majors. Yes. yes. We love us some Ida. Ida is an icon. Yes. So. Yes. Ida B. Wells came into the world still enslaved on July 16th, 1862 in Holly Holly Springs, Springs. Mississippi. (laughs) Her father was the product of his mother's master assaulting her. Of course. So the owner gave him specialized training. So his owner, who was his dad. Yeah, Yeah. this is great. um, Gave him specialized training in carpentry. And the Wells family was allowed to live in town and not on the plantation. So he was slightly better than Church's dad, but not by much. Not by much. So nice of him. Again, the bar is on the floor. (laughs) I know. And the Wells family lived in town. He was known as a slave in town. Um, And so he would rent him out to other people to do carpentry work. Um, Again, you get no kudos for that. You're still in hell, my dude. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, Papa Wells was not with the shits and was active in Reconstruction politics post-Civil War. Ida came by it naturally. Tragedy struck the Wells family when Ida was just 16. Her mother, father, and youngest sibling died of, wait for it, yellow fever. Well, some of her older relatives recommended splitting up her and her five other siblings, Ida would have no such thing. Her grandmother and a family friend moved in with the family while Ida taught at the Black Elementary School in Holly Springs. Ida would move to Memphis to teach and continue her own education. She, like her parents before her, wasn't with the shits. Instead of men, 
I will not begin at this late day by doing what my soul abhors, sugaring men, weak, deceitful creatures, with flattery to retain them as escorts or to gratify a revenge. Icon. Get it, girl. Iconic. She figured this out at 24, which means she was doing way better than I was at 24. I swear, same. (laughs) Her activism against segregation began when she refused to give up her first class seat in the ladies' car to a white woman and moved to the smoking car. I wouldn't either. She was forcefully removed from the train by a conductor and two men. Um, there's a scene in the color purple where Oprah Winfrey's character is forcefully removed from something and is basically pistol whipped by a bunch of men. So I'm imagining it's somewhere like that. Probably. She filed suit against the railroad company, but her first attorney was paid off. Of course he was. So she hired a white attorney. She wrote about the incident and her fight for justice in a weekly newspaper uh, for black churches, which was called, where was it? The Living Way. Um, black media, especially newspapers, huge thing, huge part of journalism history in America, huge part of Ida's story. She initially won her suit in the local court and was granted a $500 award. The Tennessee Supreme Court, no, Tennessee. <laughs> You just stay failing, don't you, babe? Yep. Overturned the ruling, and Ida was also ordered to pay the railroad company's court costs. What the wow. fuck? They That's did all of this right there over Such a five hundred dollar award. Yeah. Whatever. She had zero plans to stay silent. While still teaching, she wrote for local Memphis newspapers and a DC newspaper under the pen name Iola. Which is a, a town in Mississippi, I think. Isn't it? Probably. It sounds like Probably. it. The Memphis Board of Education mm-hmm. caught wind of her articles critical of the school system and fired her. The Memphis Board of Education has not improved any of the intervening no, years. I don't think so. She was, of course, upset, but she remained undaunted and continued to write for The Living Way, which was the um, Black Church Weekly, and the Free Speech and Headlight which was based in a church on Beale Street. Beale Street. In 1889, a fight between a young black man and a young white man over a game of marbles would devolve into a firefight with police and the lynching of three prominent black men. It was the people's grocery lynching, and Ida would cover it in detail. I highly recommend looking into the story. It is an incredibly interesting story. Um, The people's grocery is basically a grocery co-op. Um, yes, communities of color have been doing co-ops long before hippie white people took it over. Yep. Um, but that's, that's for another day. Um, and three prominent black men, one was a postal carrier, um, and then two co-owners of the grocery store were lynched. Um, this would lead her to look into more lynchings in the area, including one in which a white father had his daughter's black boyfriend killed in order to, quote, save her reputation. Oh, sweet Jesus. We will hear about this again. Ida keyed into a very specific part of lynching. Black men accused of raping white women. Ida uncovered many cases in which the relationship was entirely consensual, but in order to protect the reputation of the white party, or rather her family, the black man would be accused of rape. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Ida, in her brash, unapologetic way, said in an editorial in the free speech, quote, if Southern men are not careful, a conclusion might be reached, which would be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Mm-hmm. God damn. Mm-hmm. In short, black men aren't rapists. Some of your women just have other preferences. Exactly. The white folk of Memphis were, to put it mildly, displeased. Mm -hmm. Go figure. (laughs) One newspaper wrote, quote, the fact that a black scoundrel is allowed to live and utter such loathsome and loathsome and repulsive calumnies is a volume of evidence as to the wonderful patience of southern whites but we've had enough of it another wrote quote patience under such circumstances is not a virtue if i don't like this word but it's in a quote negroes i did the sign of the cross um themselves do not apply the remedy without delay it will be the duty of those whom he has attacked to tie the wretch who utters these calumnies this is the second time calumnies has been used and i dislike it to a stake at the intersection of main and madison streets brand him in the forehead with a hot iron and perform upon him a surgical operation with a pair of tailor scissors what do you think they're talking about there gee whiz what you do to cattle and pigs yeah assholes a lot of them Mm -hmm. then a group of white men ransacked the newspaper offices and forced the editor at gunpoint to write an official retraction of ida's editorial can't take the heat stay out of the kitchen you fuckers yep ida was thankfully vacationing in manhattan at the time and never returned to memphis smart In 1892, Ida wrote a pamphlet entitled Southern Horrors, where she detailed lynchings in the South and posited that the violation of white women was just a smokescreen to cover for the real fear of Black progress, socially and economically. One of the reasons the People's Grocery incident got so out of control is that the People's Grocery was Black-owned and far more successful than the white-owned grocery store across the street. And because nothing really ever changes, the sanctity of white women is still included in white nationalist propaganda to this mm-hmm. day. Yep. It's part of the founding words of the neo-Nazis, if that tells you anything. I don't know. Which is, oh, I hate white ladies, that. we need to keep this in mind. Yeah. Ida would also write another pamphlet, The Red Record, which, in which she brought the receipts she had hard statistics on extrajudicial lynchings of black men across the South and how it had increased since the Civil War. When black men were valuable farm equipment, it made no sense to kill them in mass, but it made economic sense to keep them from graining ground and economic and social status as free people, and the fear of death was cheap and easy. Ida had hoped that the pamphlets would stir white allies in the North to action, But as is often the case, even today, the economics won out over the morality. They were still getting cheap goods from the South. So it's kind of like, oh, that's the South's problem. What are we going to do? We don't do that up here, even though there are lynchings in the North. Um, We'll get there. Ida would conclude the only way for Blacks in the South to protect themselves and their interests would be through armed resistance. This is a good time to note that open carry was fully legal in California until the Black Panthers showed up at the Capitol with guns. Mm. Reagan quickly changed course after that. Yeah, of course. Uh, States only allow open carry because it's white people doing it. 
I'm just as soon as black people start opium carrying, them laws gonna change mm-hmm. real fast. Ida then toured Great Britain doing lectures at the suggestion of none other than Frederick Douglass. Um, the group had initially wanted Frederick Douglass, but he was he was getting old and his health wasn't doing great. So he suggested Ida, which was, I mean, if you're going to have a reference, that's a fucking reference. Yeah. Ida married Chicago attorney Frederick Barnett in 1895, and they would have six children. Um, I'm not sure if he had two sons when um they married so i'm not sure if that six includes his two sons right or if there were eight in total i'm not 100 yeah. certain i couldn't find out um motherhood changed her activism in many ways including starting the first kindergarten for black children in chicago she and her husband led a boycott of the world's columbian exposition and started the again it's in the name i don't like it negro fellowship league which started the first fellowship houses for black Chicagoans, especially those new to town for the great migration. So during this time, you have people leaving the South en masse because again, lynchings, Um, there was a big flood. The Mississippi flooded really bad, which put a lot of black sharecroppers, especially out of jobs. So they went North, they went West, they went to the Northeast. Um, And so you get up there, you don't have anywhere to go. You don't have anywhere to stay. And this fellowship house basically gave them a roof over their head, food, and then connections to jobs, which is super important. I mean, it's hard to get started somewhere new unless you know somebody. She was also incredibly active in the suffrage movement and believed that Black women's suffrage was Keats' progress in the Black community. Ida was a keystone for Black feminism. She frequently noted that white men lynching Black men for supposedly raping white women was a projection of white men's own sexual violence against white and Black women. So y'all be rapists, so you think Mm -hmm. everyone else is rapists. Yep. Which is Mm -hmm. how rapists tend to think. Oh, yeah. Um, Her work cast a spotlight on intersectionality and how racial and gender justice are linked. So uh, very good friend of mine on twitter said if your feminism isn't intersectional your feminism is bullshit ida would agree yes the black female experience and the white female experience are incredibly different yep that has to be acknowledged in any work you do going forward yep preach it preach it Mm -hmm. she was also labeled a race agitator by the u.s government during world war one a proud distinction if there ever was one good for her if Hoover hated you, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> I think this was pre-Hoover, but still. Uh, she ran for the Illinois Senate in 1930 as an independent, but did lose. Ida died of kidney failure in March 1925. March 1925. Jesus Christ, Hannah. I, too, have not had enough coffee. <laughs> Ida died of kidney failure on March 25th, 1931. Because she can't <laughs> run for Senate in 1930 if she died in 1925. At the age of 68, she is buried in Oakwood Cemetery on the south side next to her husband, who would pass five years after her. Their stone reads Crusaders for Justice. Heck yeah. Monuments and memorials abound for Ida. Law schools and journalism schools across this great nation have programs and chairs and scholarships in her name. I could not list them all. There's a bunch. Mm -hmm. Um, Her birthplace in Holly Springs is a national monument and a museum for Black history. 
um, as is her birthplace here in Chicago or birthplace, her home here in Chicago. (laughs) Caffeine, y'all. And it's early. (laughs) A housing project in Bronzeville, a historically black neighborhood in Chicago, was named for her and a new monument was dedicated to her in the neighborhood in summer of 2021. In July of 2018, Chicago renamed Congress Parkway to Ida B. Wells Drive, the first downtown Chicago street named her woman of color. Woo. And that is my girl, the icon. I Ida love B. her. There's Yay. so much more, guys. There's oh, yeah. so and much more. Memphis just put up a statue of her in downtown Memphis. Yay. And, um, there is a Barbie doll. Uh, yes i to be barbie coming out the, the barbie is lovely you and can I, pre-order I it, it for like 35 bucks i kind of want it because I, I love to be wells and i love barbie so and journalism like, yes. yes yeah because i think doesn't she have a little newspaper with her i think she does yeah oh it's so cute anyway <laughs> <laughs> so yeah ha- uh, happy black history month everyone i hope that you continue to study black history throughout the year um because it is so, I mean, literally this country is built on black folks right. and, and, and we, we, we shouldn't just limit this to a month. It should be all the time. Um, and we really wanted to highlight black excellence in this, mm-hmm. like, cause yes. we white people discussing black pain for entertainment oh, is, yeah. it makes me uncomfortable. It does. Um, I mean, it's like, there's, and there is some black pain because she, you know, lynching sure, was sure. part of her her journalistic crusade there, but she was excellent. And you know, this isn't about making oh well, we're the good white people. Right? I mean, that yeah. It was you know, these were awesome ass people. You know, one of my favorite books that I've read in the last couple of years, and I'm double checking. Yes, um, a little devil in America in praise of black performance by Hanif Adurkeeb. It absolutely changed everything I saw. It's about black performances, basically, in America right. and, and how we perceive black artists and performances. And one thing he, an, an entire chapter was on, basically, why do black people only get Oscars and, and Golden Globes for playing slaves? Right. Why does it always have to be a, a tale of Pain. black suffering right. in order for them like, to be honored? And it, I with Precious, I've always Precious. felt that. Precious was a great movie. It was hard to watch, but it was a great yeah. movie. But it's like there are so many other fantastic black performances, and the one that makes white people feel away is the one that gets nominated. Yeah, and 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 please keep the help and the blind side and all that junk to yourself. Right. I don't even want to talk about the help. I don't. Even want to talk I don't the blind side is is a problem for me just because. You know, the two E's are based in Memphis and just- we know somebody who dated that kid. <laughs> yes. Like <laughs> I just, I don't, I, I, I'm not here for your stories where white people should be patted on the back for treating people like black people like human beings. Like yeah. the bar is so low and, and we, we barely scrape over it and we should be applauded for that. No, I do not think so. Yeah. I hate that crap hate it keep your southern little sweet oh look a, black, a white person was nice to white black. savior shove it yeah. shove yeah. it I oh god i will get on a soapbox now and while i'm on that soapbox jesus Ooh. was black yeah right right so, okay yeah. anyway yeah. 
Well, I, just, and I just pissed off a bunch of people with that, but yeah, that's okay. okay. You spoke the truth, Lori. You well, I mean, truth. that's what I was saying about Memphis. Memphis is black culture, right? It why is, do you? And, you and know, why does Memphis get all the hate? Why does Nashville well, get all the love? Hmm. Right. Exact, I mean, New Orleans is black yeah. culture. Yeah. Chicago has a ton of black yes. culture. Mm-hmm. Detroit is black culture is black culture yeah and then these are all of the places that statistically do not have as much crime as other cities or are neck and neck with what you would expect from a major city and do you know how many Chirac jokes i get on the reg yeah and i'm like it could be because there's a bunch of black people here right that's certainly not what it I is i mean i'm so sick of people being like oh memphis is so dangerous i'm like okay i've Never been scared here. Like you know, I've roamed on, my up. bitch ass all over Memphis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really feel like Memphis is really only dangerous if you're black, unfortunately. And yeah. you're living in those yeah, rough I neighborhoods. I could um, see that. Because well, when you see then- when you see all of these shooting reports and incidents, it's always, you know in those poor communities where it's the same here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's Austin, it's Bronzeville. It's, you know, yeah. and then when you hear about true crime in the true crime community, nine times out of 10, that's white on white crime. And, you know, so it's like, you can sit here and say black on black crime. Why don't, you know, true crime, blah, blah, right, blah, blah, right. all your different things. Like, <sighs> Here's the it, thing with crime thing for me in that, but, right. it, but it is too, but either way, I, it, well, or anyway, and here's the thing with crime <laughs> so many thoughts is in my head. if you're the victim of a crime, it's most likely to be from somebody within your community. Yeah. Right. That is, yes. White That's people are more say. likely to be killed by white people. Black people are yes. more likely killed, robbed, whatever by other people yes. in the community because that's how criminals work. Yeah. Right. They st- they're not trying to get caught. So they're not trying to stand out. Yeah, so, exactly. They're going to go places where they blend in. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, it's like with any city. I live, my area of Chicago is is safe. I feel safe here. Yeah. But it's any city. You keep your head on a fucking swivel. You don't yeah. be stupid. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Act like you have some common fucking sense. And that's yes. why I never felt unsafe in New Orleans. No. I never felt unsafe in Memphis because you just act like you have some common fucking sense. Exactly. Right? You know, you don't walk in there like a fucking tourist. You walk in there and you act like you're supposed to be there and people will leave you alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you mind your own goddamn business. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Eyes to the front. Keep it moving. It ain't your business. Move on. <laughs> you That's know? you know, I was saying that the other day. Like it amazes me how many things in this world could be solved if people would just mind their own business. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's not your business. Babe. If I don't see a child being hurt or an animal right. being hurt, or you know, somebody like a woman being hurt, it ain't my fucking business. Like, you know, yeah. I'm not now. I do see like when I see cops have somebody pull over, I tend to linger because the presence yeah. of a white lady tends to make cops act a little bit different. White ladies, keep that in mind. That is our job moving forward. Use your privilege. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if it's just two dudes arguing on the street, what the fuck's that got to do with me? Let them argue. If they're going to fight, they're going to fight. It's none of my business. I'm not getting involved. Yeah. If I think it's domestic, I'll be like, hey, y'all good? What's up? Yeah. Because I have no sense, but <laughs> otherwise, mind your business and keep it moving. Are they selling drugs? Maybe. Are you buying? Not your business. No. Move yeah, on. Business exactly. Keep it moving. Yep. So yeah. Anyway, 
Happy Black History Month. Happy yes. Black History Month. Um, Mind your goddamn business. <laughs> maybe we should have had our, our angry um, outbursts ahead of time. So we'd have been <laughs> more awake, but I don't know. Um, but next week or next time, whatever, we will still be in February and we will be discussing love or the lack thereof. <laughs> yes. Um, so look forward to some, yeah, some either, um, some, some sweet love stories or some scary love stories, or, um, hopefully we'll make you laugh one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what we'll we're try. here for. We'll try. We'll see what we can do. Uh, Lori, you mentioned it earlier, but where can people find us? Yes, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod. And you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. Yay! 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 All right, y'all. All right. Let, let's get warm. Let's go warm up. <laughs> We're trying to stay warm. Yes. yes. I guess I'll try right. to find me some decaf coffee somewhere. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> Uh, all right well uh thanks for listening bye bye